listening to the Fix Plasma podcast, and this episode I originally intended to cover Robert W. Chambers' King in Yellow. That is coming, but I've moved the schedule about a bit for reasons, uh, and instead, this episode, I'm going to cover Jack Vance's Big Planet. Big Planet was serialised in 1952 and collected as one volume in 1957. This puts it just after the first Dying Earth collection, and so very early in the context of Vance's vast bibliography. For the context, uh, Inferio, Planet of Adventure, Demon Princes were published in the late 60s, Durdane in the 70s, Leoness in the 80s. So we're talking about very early Vance. Big Planet is less elaborately written than the later stuff, but there are some obvious hallmarks. Being a serial, it's a series of compartmentalised short adventures, and whilst there is a continuity throughout, it's still kind of a picaresque format we get in The Dying Earth, and to some extent Leoness, I suppose. Okay, I'm going to start with a synopsis. The first chapter opens with an ensemble cast on a delegation to Big Planet with the aim of halting the illegal trade in arms and slaves between Earth and Charlie Lysida, the Bajanaman Beaujolais, a Big Planet warlord with ambitions to unite the feudal society under his own banner. We learn that Earth Central has sent commissions to Big Planet once a generation for 500 years. Sometimes the commission returns alive, more often not. In either case, nothing is accomplished, a few investigators lose their lives, much money is spent, Big Planet tempers are ruffled, and things go on regrettably as before. Those words are spoken by Arthur Hidders, a curious fur trader who is travelling on the same ship as the delegation led by Cloud Lystra. Other characters are introduced swiftly around the dinner table, a collection of scientists, diplomats and other educated representatives of Earth. But that's all the time we get to explore the party before the ship is sabotaged and Lystra's team is down some 40,000 miles from their destination at Earth Enclave. Now, with the vastness of Big Planet between them and safety, the characters set off on their impossible journey with these thoughts in mind. First, survival. They're aware that their knowledge and technology make them no better than the low-tech locals, and in some cases, they're at a disadvantage. They're not familiar with the primitive tools used by the population, nor are they used to the same sort of hardships. With that in mind, Glystra marshals the team to use its knowledge to their advantage. Now, their second thought is, who might be the traitor? Fingers are pointed and shots are fired, people die, but we're never certain. This forms the foundation of the arc plot as they travel through a series of vignettes, taking in the weirdness and savagery of Big Planet. They encounter cannibalistic gypsies, drug-addled Bajanum soldiers, superstitious ferrymen, monsters both fake and real, a utopian society where everyone is a noble one-third of the time and labours for the rest so their peers can take a turn playing the upper crust. They travel on foot, on mounts, and on the High Line, uh, which is a swinging trolleys like a cross between cable cars and a roller coaster, basically. And the final encounter is with a society whose short-lived oracles gain their visions from a spinal injection of a distillate taken from the pineal glands of four other people. Gradually, their numbers diminish. Vance displays his trademark callousness with one character alive in one sentence and dispatched in another. The journey strips the party of its numbers and... At the same time, their technological edge diminishes with their advanced weapons that help them win a few early battles, rapidly losing charge and ammunition. It all feels very much like The Dying Earth, with each chapter being more or less self-contained, as one would expect, since it was serialised long before being collected in one place. At the same time, while it has the same peculiar assortment of cultures and beliefs which would be consistent with a fantasy, it has the external and technologically advanced outsiders who make sense of the superstitions for us. Inevitably, the remaining characters end their adventures with a standoff between Gleister and the Charlie Lysida, who reveals his hand in their initial sabotage. This is classic Vance in a couple of ways. The plot is neatly brought to a circle, 
and the final triumph of good over evil comes about thanks to Gleister's superior wits and insight into his environment. And that's about as far as I want to go with the synopsis, because there's an awful lot of detail in there I could dig into. One of the joys of France is, of course, the use of language and the inventive dialogue, and also the strange cultures which one encounters. Instead, I'd like to talk about the themes. The first theme I want to talk about is the central idea of the big planet, which is what makes the picaresque novel work as a sort of sci-fi dying earth. In fact, the idea of a big journey was used in the second dying earth novel, The Eyes of the Overworld, from 1966. The setup for that novel is Kugel attempting a theft from Aokanu, the laughing magician, I think I've pronounced that correctly, and as punishment being forced on a quest and flung to the far north by magic, from which he must make his journey all the way back to Aokanu's manse and naturally enjoying all kinds of adventures along the way. Now, in Big Planet, the distances are so vast that we have a kind of patchwork of societies with ample space to grow, and therefore no need to conquer the neighbours. Each community is a self-contained world. They don't really import anything from outside, save what travellers might bring in trade whilst passing through. In Kirstendale, the locals make a big show of importing meat for a feast because their own local animals are unpalatable. And the distance the party have to travel to Earth Enclave, which is 40,000 miles, well, to put that in perspective, Earth's circumference is around 25,000 miles. Jupiter's circumference is over 270,000 miles. Earth to the Moon is around 240,000 miles. So, mountains, lakes and plains are all proportionally huge. Strangely, though, the animals aren't. They're on human scale. So, what's up with that? I'm kind of reminded about the Undines in A Very Different Dying Earth, which is Gene Wolfe's book of the New Sun. Those are creatures who have grown so massive that they can't move around on land and need a body of water to support their own body weight. And we do have a fascination with gigantic beings, from Kaiju to Cthulhu. And in the latter case, the gigantic gods of Lovecraft are, to some extent, extraterrestrial. So could an altogether bigger planet be the birthplace of these monsters? Of course, there is the phenomenon of island gigantism, where a species isolated on an island can grow much larger. But we're talking about individuals who have been transported from their home to Earth, as far as the gods go. Okay, and all that puts Big Planet in a very different light. I wonder what vast beings are lurking in its lakes. If such a creature were found, how would the settlers approach it? This brings me on to the second theme, which is superstition and its flip side, technological awareness and superiority. To the Earth delegation, the big planet is a puzzle to be unlocked as they cross the huge distances, but to the locals who place themselves in one particular spot and don't move about, some of the wonder of big planet is explained away as magic and mysticism, the oracles in the final chapters being a case in point. They assume it's the distillation of pineal gland which both grants insight and kills the oracle after their brief vision but Gleister learns differently by observation. So let's say you have a bunch of settlers from Earth. They pick their spot and they settle for generations. Note that Earth delegations have been sent to Big Planet for the last 500 years, so there's plenty of time for generations of settlers to discover new plants and medicines and abuse those, or alternatively discover, say, a vast alien form in a lake and start to worship that. And you've got the makings of a new Innsmouth right there. It's because Big Planet has no perceived value to outsiders that it isn't being explored and divided up by colonial forces, so there's no one to shine a critical eye on the planet. This is supposedly a planet that's devoid of metal resources. As a consequence, its density is much lower, so it can be the size of Jupiter, but still have an Earth-like gravity. And let's not forget that most of these Earth delegations have been killed. There's hardly anyone bringing news back from Big Planet, so who knows how little outsiders know. There's an Earth enclave, but that's probably isolated from the rest of Big Planet, since it would take incredible resources to explore and reach out to the various communities. 
So at best, they've got a finger-painted map of the various communities and certainly no vested interest in leading these people to civilization. That job then falls to the warlords themselves, who, quite frankly, probably do a better job of uniting peoples, but obviously always under their own banner and therefore subject to their own bias. So, who knows what traditions and habits the settlers have developed on contact with Big Planet over generations? One other thing I want to talk about, uh, which goes with this, is the theme of expanding consciousness, which Vance uses in later works. So, for example, in Inferio, Gael Tavok learns the truth about his oppressive community with its draconian laws by travelling outside it, gaining knowledge and then coming back to use that against his oppressors. Gastel Ertzwein goes through a similar transformation in the Durdane trilogy, but I'm thinking less about cracking the puzzle of Big Planet and more about the opportunities this mismatch between superstition and critical thinking present, and all the ways human colonists can get it wrong. So here's the last theme I want to talk about. Let's talk about survival. This is a journey with a steady attrition of resources. It's a scenario where... A bunch of intellectuals, scientists and civilised folk have been dropped into a savage landscape and made to fend for themselves. As stated early on, they have no advantage compared to the locals and may even be worse off since the locals understand their own primitive technology and they don't. Now they do start off with powerful weapons like these weapons called iron shines and uh, heat guns and they use these a lot early on. And a single shot is enough to blacken and shrivel a person's head to the size of a prune from my memory. But they're running out of ammunition, so this strategy is only going to last so long. And as the miles go on, they have to make harder choices about using those resources. It's quite funny that they also go from rags to riches and then back to rags with regularity. They acquire enough metal to use as money to pay for their transport on the High Line, then they lose it again having been robbed, then they get it back again. The other resources they steadily lose are actual people. There aren't many left in the party by the end of the journey, and it's a, it's a bit like an Agatha Christie novel, or well, maybe a cooperative board game. Okay, speaking of games, let's talk about RPGs now. First thing I want to talk about is travelling. I like RPGs which incorporate travel rules. Ages ago I played a demo of The One Ring, and I really like that, the way that the characters travelled. I also really like the travelling rules in Lace and Steel, which I think is one of the most overlooked fantasy RPGs of the 1980s. So, travelling. It's an expenditure of resources. For example, food and water, ammunition, animal mounts, fuel. But also you could think of other things that change over time on a journey. For example, disease incubation. That could be good and fun. Let's say early on one of your characters gets infected with a parasite which gradually takes over their body and messes with their physical and mental functions. Or, let's think about fractious emotional states. Maybe it's not a resource, but it's certainly something that could change over time. I've been getting into Drama System lately, and this makes me think of a game where the daytime adventure, or procedural bits, may be punctuated by nighttime rest sections where you play out dramatic scenes, and those in turn generate drama tokens, which you could then spend on doing stuff in the adventure phase, like fate or hero points. So you've then got the daytime activity feeding the nighttime activity when people have emotional conversations about how they feel about each other and then their survival is then based on the outcome of those conversations that could be neat okay setting aside the whole new school narrative stuff let's talk hex crawls now here's something for discussion i think we all agree that agency is important so there are quite a few ways agency manifests in the game freedom to talk to whoever you want, to follow clues, to take actions and influence the world around you, to develop emotionally, etc, etc. 
Before all of that, we have the freedom to go wherever we want. By that logic, the hex crawl is a fundamental expression of player agency. Now, it needs stuff around it to support the exercise, like a map, obviously. The players need to see the terrain around them. The relative distances, the landmarks, they don't have to see everything, and you can draw a boundary at the limit of their vision. One really good OSR tool for this is the landmark system in Further Afield for Beyond the Wall, which is one of my favourite RSR titles, where PCs might not know much about the world outside their home hex, but they have seen, heard of, or read about things in the distance, like cities and ruins and castles and dangerous places. The nice thing about that system is it takes into account the reliability of the information. So you could run the big planet hex rule in this way. Start with the players having a rudimentary map where they crash land, with basic terrain features, then you can splash a few landmarks around. Territories of the various factions and warlords, places of note, Earth Enclave, assuming that they're heading that way on the other end of the map. You can decide at the start how reliable their information is concerning certain places, but then they get the free choice to make their way to Earth Enclave any way they fancy. And of course, moving from hex to hex, they get to encounter whole miniature worlds within each hex. As well as providing adventures, you could then use that to feed the map as well, say, they discover a better map, or learn new information from an NPC, or interrogate the antagonists, or intercept communications, or... Now that I think of it, the other Hexcore product that comes to mind is Jeffrey McKinney's Carcosa, which is published by Lamentations of the Flame Princess, which has a really nicely hyperlinked PDF, by the way. Lots of hexes to explore, each one with two very terse descriptions in it, like tens of thousands of ancient stone burial vaults dot these barren plains. Every one of them has been broken open and emptied. That's hex 0110, if you're interested. Now, if you were to use this with Big Planet scenario in mind, you might have to change the scale, as each hex in Carcosa is 10 miles across, but otherwise, it's a viable product out of the box, especially if you want to explore the Lovecraftian elements I discussed earlier, on top of the Sword and Planet SF stuff. However you structure your hex crawl, you need some way of counting down resources. Now, OSR systems like Lamentations or White Hack don't really offer much in the way of support for measuring fatigue or mental state. Not really a problem if you're an inventive GM and you know how to put your PCs under pressure, but it is something else you need to do. But I want to make a shout out to the Black Hack because it's worth noting that the Black Hack has its resource dice to show diminishing supplies like arrows and holy water and other things. And you could apply that resource die to equipment, you could apply it to fatigue, all sorts of other things which you, know, you have a dwindling supply of and at some point the lack of it is going to cause a problem. I've actually nicked the mechanic for Stormhack which is my OSR mashup of Blackhack, Whitehack and Chaosium's Stormbringer. And I'm using the resource dice for saving throws but I'm also thinking of some mechanics for fatigue. All that said it might be easier to look at games like D100 basic role-playing for fatigue and sanity loss however Obviously those titles have a head start with the Lovecraftian Beastry from Call of Cthulhu and also have some solid fantasy titles like RuneQuest, I think that's fatigue rules in there. There's Elric and Stormbringer and the various iterations. And then I think basic role-playing will also sort you out for technology. Um, in fact, the Call of Cthulhu rules for handguns are probably all you really need. Of course, there is a third old-school option, which is Traveller. Some years ago, a company called Expeditious Retreat Press published a game called Worlds Apart, and that's based on Mongoose Traveller, which, which is probably the best iteration of Traveller. Very nice and simple, but also cleaned up really well. I think it was Gareth Ryder Hanrahan who worked on that. Um, 
that game takes the traveller model of trading between star systems and applies it to an archipelago. So it does this whole age of sail thing that Traveller does in a literal archipelago with sailing ships. With that in mind, why not repurpose Traveller or its equivalent to a vast land crawl where you want to use the random tools in Traveller to develop whole communities, one per hex. You've got a range of governmental styles, uh, climates, tech levels, all sorts of things that you could apply to those individual discrete worlds. But even better, actually, um, you could use a completely different game system, go back to the OSR and use Sign Nominee Silent Legions, which is, is a, although it's a modern horror game, it has whole tables dedicated to generating cultures and societies in pocket dimensions called Kilopot, or Kilopot. I think that's the right pronunciation. That's still one of my favourite OSI implementations and horror games. All right, this is the last words. Vance's Big Planet is really interesting for the Vance reader because of the plot structure at for that foreshadows later worlds, situations and protagonists in his later novels. It's also really interesting, though, as a template for hex crawls, which are a particular mainstay of Appendix N adherence. Um, but it's not an Appendix N title. Why isn't it there? Probably because it's science fiction. Um, it's not too early in Vance's canon. It is kind of on its own, as opposed to The Dying Earth, in terms of reader recognition. So back to the charge of, well, it's SF, not fantasy. It's not really, it's Sword and Planet. It is still fantasy. It still works in that kind of genre space. And in my view, Dying Earth itself is... Dying Earth straddles the point between fantasy and science fiction. Certainly Gene Wolfe's Book of the New Sun does that. And I think it's fair to say that Vance's Dying Earth is a bit like that, imagining a far future. So it's kind of a blind spot, and I think it's and it's worth shining a light onto just to think about what it kind of implies in terms of journeys and hex crawls moving between different cultures, even though it's otherwise quite a simple and pulpy story. Right, that's a wrap. See you next time. If you like what you've heard, um, how about giving a review on iTunes? And if you want to get in touch, we're at Victorplasm on Twitter, or you can leave a comment on the blog at www.victorplasm.net. Music for this podcast is by Chris Zabriskie. Find out more at www.chriszabriskie.com.